You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 158 by Rudolf Steiner, Our Connection with the Elemental World, translated by Simon Blacksland DeLange. This is the first lecture after the introductory lecture. I'm calling this Lecture 1, given in Dornach on the 9th of November, 1914. Today I should like to open up a theme which will enable us to gain a better understanding of what I have been saying in several lectures recently with regard to the further development of our building, and which will, moreover, be a basis for much that may be added in future. We know that man's soul nature appears to us as having the distinct aspects of the sentient soul, the intellectual or mind soul, and the consciousness soul. We know, too, that as described in my book titled Theosophy, man's ego is active within these three soul members. Now a great deal happens in human nature that does not enter one's consciousness. It is a feature of spiritual scientific knowledge that much that resides in the depths of the human soul can gradually be illumined by the light of consciousness. But if the human soul is active in this way, it is only able to shed light upon a small part of its inner horizon, whereas below this horizon there is much that, while it does not normally become conscious, is of the deepest significance for the soul, and is indeed far more significant for its whole configuration than anything of which it is conscious. We shall now turn our attention primarily to something that does not normally come to consciousness, and indeed it is greatly to the benefit of people today that it does not do so. However, we shall come to see that this was not always the case for all people. If ordinary, everyday human consciousness were only deepened to a small extent and were able to bring to the surface what is one degree less conscious than ordinary consciousness, the human soul would very soon discover that there is a threefold aspect to it, such that it is not simply a unity, but has a triune nature. I have indicated in my book titled Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? Readers aside, also known as Knowing Higher Worlds, always also known as Knowledge of the Higher Worlds and Its Attainment. End of readers aside. That if a person begins to approach the spiritual worlds, he, as it were, separates out into a threefold soul nature. If, as has been suggested, one begins to observe the hidden part of consciousness, one very soon comes to see that this threefoldness of sentient soul, intellectual or mind soul, and consciousness soul is a reality. Beneath the threshold of consciousness, and not to any great depth for people today, There is a soul domain of such a kind that it is not pervaded by a unity, but is irradiated by a threefold quality. So that the moment that a person suppresses what he is actually 
only fully acquired since the second half of the fourth post-Atlantean period, and hence with full clarity only since the beginning of the fifth post-Atlantean era, he can distinguish with some precision between three worlds or regions in his soul. One region is one that is to a greater degree inspired by dreamlike inspirations. The second is a realm whereby man is in a certain sense ensouled, formed in his various physical aspects. And the third region is where he becomes conscious of the world. The first region is therefore one into which inspirations enter, dreamlike inspirations, with which the soul that is affiliated to the sentient soul is filled. A second realm where the soul builds up its body through its own inner forms and shapes is associated with the intellectual or mind-soul. This is the inner architect or master builder. We might also say the smith or forger of the physical body. And the third realm, that of serving as the mediator of outward knowledge, which is connected with the world of the senses, is associated with the consciousness soul. Thus this latter member has, one could say, a connection with physical powers. Something akin to a triune soul quality lives in man's soul. And in contrast to this threefold aspect, there is a prevailing tendency toward oneness. I should like to indicate this by contrasting one particular soul region with another. And there's a drawing. This soul region functions in a certain respect wholly as a unity. It is, of course, quite natural for the soul as regards its temperament, character, and fundamental nature to have a quality of oneness or one-foldness. I should like to characterize it as the one-fold soul in contrast to the threefold soul. As our soul is presently constituted, this one-fold soul is unable to emerge from a somewhat apathetic kind of existence, unless it is illumined or irradiated in some way. And in our time, this results in one form or another from the mystery of Golgotha. I shall therefore make you a symbolic representation of the way in which the mystery of Golgotha irradiates the one-fold soul. See drawing 2. We have in the course of recent years been making considerable efforts, gradually, to form some idea of the infinite implications of everything associated with the mystery of Golgotha. You will therefore realize that when the mystery of Golgotha illumines the human soul in some way, this is only a certain stage, a certain level of the mystery of Golgotha. But let us suppose that because the one-fold soul is of a dull and brooding nature, even though it has something of the greatest value for our time, this quality of oneness needs in some way or other to be illumined by the mystery of Golgotha. Now every soul receives influences emanating from various centers of inspiration and initiation in the world, and that also includes the subconscious influences upon the human soul. The influence of the mystery of Golgotha is of an all-encompassing universal nature, but an individual human soul can receive this mystery of Golgotha only in a particular way. 
the center of initiation which exerts a particular influence, upon the inner regions of the soul, in order that it may be properly prepared to receive the illuminating influences from the mystery of Golgotha, is one of which I have often spoken as being under the guardianship of the initiate Scythianos. Let us therefore assume that the soul has been prepared in the onefold soul for what emanates from the mystery of Golgotha and is ready to receive it through the influence that streams unconsciously into every soul from Scythianos. Thus we see the human soul divided, as it were, into two realms, one of which has a threefold quality and the other a quality of oneness, one that has more of a soul character and one of a more elemental, brooding kind, a realm that receives into the very depths of its nature, on the one hand, the forces of the mystery of Golgotha, and on the other, the influences of Scythianos. Now this one-fold quality cannot so readily be merged with man's threefold nature. That would be impossible. For this reason, this threefold nature remains below the threshold of consciousness. It must, in a certain sense, be numbed. The consciousness of it has to be extinguished. If the soul were really able to enter into the state of threefoldness, it would immediately feel itself as three rather than one. It would say, there is something in me that inspires me, something that builds me, that welds and forges me, and something that connects me with the outside world. But this threefoldness has to be blotted out or overshadowed by what leads a person to say to himself, I do not distinguish the three. Thus something needs to radiate into the three that causes the soul not to have an awareness of them, but blots them out, so that they relate to one another like clouds of mist. You see, it is possible for there to be a connection between what needs to live in the soul as a single entity and the soul's threefold nature, if there is a means of communication or exchange, a kind of interconnecting link within the soul extending to the obscured threefold aspect from the single entity, which is irradiated from two sides, so that there is not only a dull, vague sameness about its character and mood, but that it is illumined as a whole by a sense of man's potential, by a consciousness of the human soul's connection with divine spiritual existence. There's another drawing. What I have drawn here is a picture of what lies at the foundation of every human soul. No human soul can exist in our time without these elements being present within it. But now, consider the following. As a means of demonstrating what our building needs to become, I have often reiterated that what lives in the human soul and also manifests itself outwardly comes to expression in the outward evolution of the earth. If there is a realm in the human soul that indeed manifests a kind of threefold nature and which in people today is veiled by ordinary consciousness, we must find a stage in evolution where this becomes outwardly apparent to us, 
where the soul really feels itself as having a threefold nature and as being separated into three soul members. In other words, there must have been a people who experienced these three soul members as separate, such that the oneness in the soul was actually experienced far less vividly than its triune nature. On the grounds that this threefoldness was still thought of as being in conjunction with the cosmos. Such a people did exist in Europe, and they have bequeathed the remarkable cultural legacy of which I have previously spoken. This people who experienced this threefold nature in that part of Europe, which they needed to occupy, is the Finnish people. And the expression of this stage of culture is set forth in the Kalevala. In what is described in the Kalevala, there is a clear consciousness of the threefold nature of the soul. For the seers of olden times, whose visionary clairvoyance underlay the Kalevala, felt that there is an inspirational quality in the soul, with which one of their soul members, the sentient soul, had a connection, in that all its forces were oriented toward this source of its impulses. This people, or rather its ancient seers, experienced what inspired the sentient soul as something of a divinely human or heroically human nature. They called this Vainamoinen. This is none other than the inspiring force of the sentient soul in the cosmos. All the destinies that are described in the Kalevala as the destinies of Vainamoinen are evidence of the fact that this consciousness formerly existed in a people who extended widely over the northeastern part of Europe and who experienced the three soul members as separate entities and the sentient soul as inspired by Vainamoinen. Similarly, this people, these seers of olden times, experienced that the intellectual or mind-soul is an additional soul member that receives its impulse to forge what it builds within the human soul from another elemental being of an heroic nature called Ilmarinen, just as Vainamoinen corresponds to the sentient soul, so does Ilmarinen correspond to, in the Kalevala to the intellectual or mind-soul. If you read the lecture about the Kalevala, you can find it all there. Moreover, in that this people, and this must be clearly stated, experienced the consciousness soul as that which first enabled man to achieve conquests on the physical plane, these ancient seers experienced Lemminkainen as a being who is connected with the forces of the physical plane, an elemental, heroic being who inspires the consciousness soul. Thus these three figures, whom one might well, by analogy with other epics, refer to as being in the heroic mold, derived from the ancient Finnish people, and they inspire the threefold nature of the soul. What is so wonderful is the connection between Ilmarinen and the fruits of his forging activity. I have already pointed out that man is forged out of the elements of nature. This being who is fashioned from all the atoms of nature, first reduced to dust and then welded together again, is portrayed in a magnificent tableau in the forging of the Sampo, 
in the Kalevala. It is also related in the Kalevala that once this process of forming man from these three soul members has taken place, this formative process had to go into a pralaya and then be re-engendered. For it is described how the sampo is lost and then found again, just as the light of consciousness that is initially veiled in darkness is then rediscovered. And now we need to imagine that to the south, or rather to the southeast of the Finnish people, there is another people which has in olden times cultivated those qualities of soul of which I have spoken, the one-fold aspect of the soul which brings the quality of oneness to the character, feelings, and temperament. This is a Slavic people, in contrast to the Finnish people who were mentioned earlier. This Slavic people receives its influences from Scythianos, who also lived for a while in olden times, surrounded by the ancient Scythian people. It is not at all necessary that a highly evolved people should be living around a center of initiation, but it is nevertheless the case that in the course of evolution the necessary developments should occur. What happened here was that a particular form of the mystery of Golgotha arose as a result of the influence of Greco-Byzantine culture upon the Slavic world. What I have shown here as a center of Greco-Byzantine can, if you will, be identified on the map of Europe as Constantinople, for it is indeed Constantinople. Thus, we now have souls of a fundamentally Slavic nature who are on the one hand connected with an influence from the mystery of Golgotha, which can lead to a onefold nature and can prepare souls with this quality of oneness for Christianity and who, on the other hand, receive the mystery of Golgotha in a quite particular form, as an inspiration from the mystery of Golgotha imparted through Greco-Byzantine culture. And there is a diagram. However, something further needs to be added, which can only come from a particular quarter. The separation or division of the soul into three members, which we have observed in the Finnish people, and whose fundamental principle is so beautifully portrayed in the Kalevala, must be obscured. And this can only happen if an influence comes from outside, through there being a people or a part of a people who are predisposed to have inner experience, not of threefoldness, but of onefoldness. Not the sense of oneness that one receives from the mystery of Golgotha, but rather a quality that one can imbibe from the natural world. When we study the Finnish people, we find a particular predisposition to develop a threefold consciousness. And there is no clearer expression of this threefold quality in its relation to the cosmos than in the Kalevala. But it was then necessary for what was thus developing in the north to be covered over or veiled by the process leading to the loss of this consciousness, of this threefoldness. A race asserted its presence, which quite naturally bore in its soul the aspiration toward oneness. An aspiration which, albeit in a completely different way and on an altogether different level, 
comes to expression in Goethe's title Faust, and explicitly in the figure of Faust. And the impulse underlying this, in its ignorance of threefoldness, strove toward the oneness or singleness of the ego. At what was still at a primitive level, it served to obscure the three members of the soul. Now, the Finns were a people who still quite naturally felt these things, otherwise they would not have experienced the three soul members. They were aware of what was thus flooding in and obliterating all trace of threefoldness in the soul as R, R, R. Readers aside, Steiner may be referring here to eurythmy gestures, but I am not sure. End of readers aside. And because they experienced this in-flooding tide as something that could best be expressed in occult language through the letters O, as if they wanted to say, quote, it is coming near. We must be filled with awe at its approach. Close quote. What was lightly aspirated as, in quotes, R-R-U-O, was given firmer substance through the Tao, T when it penetrates the human soul. Just as in the days of Jehovah, the pervading of the human soul was expressed by the sound S, the Hebrew in quotes Shin, spelled S-H-I-N, this reaching right into the soul comes to expression through the sound S. This then links up with what approaches and becomes firmly rooted in the soul. And in the Finnish people, everything connected with the R-R-U-U mood reaches toward the E, whose significance is well known. So, the Finnish people experienced this whole process as R-U-T-S-I, or R-U-O-T-S-I. And they called the people from whom it came the Rutsi, or Ruotsi, The Slavs gradually took on this name, and because they associated themselves with what the Finns referred to as working its way down from above, they called themselves Rutsi, or later Russians. So you see that everything that is related in historical accounts had to be that these peoples living further south, called in the Varangians, who were actually of Norman-Germanic origin, to form an alliance with the Slavic races. This was brought about by what was necessary because of the particular constitution of the human soul. And so there came into being what later became incorporated in the east of Europe as the Russian element of the European peoples. Thus in the element of Russia there really lives all that of which I have been speaking, and especially the Norman-Germanic element. Moreover, What I have been telling you also lives very much in the name Russian, for it came about in the way I have indicated. The Kalevala makes it very clearly apparent that the greatness of the Finnish people lies in that it fosters unity within a threefold context, that through the obscuring of threefoldness it prepares for the receiving of that unity, which is now no longer merely a human unity, but the divine unity wherein lies the divine hero of the mystery of Golgotha. In order that a group of people may be able to receive what is approaching them, they must first be prepared. 
In this way we may gain an impression of all that has to happen inwardly, in order that what approaches one from without may come to fulfillment in evolution. I said that the Finnish people's task to provide this preparation comes to expression in a wonderful way in the Kalevala, in that at the end of the Kalevala the mystery of Golgotha is introduced in a remarkable way. Christ makes an appearance at the end of the Kalevala, but as he casts his impulse into Finnish life, Vainamoinen leaves the country, from which we are to understand that the primordial greatness and significance of what entered Europe through Finland was a preparatory stage for Christianity, which it received as a message imparted from outside. Just as we see in the case of an individual human being that it is necessary for him to be prepared in highly complicated ways in order that his soul may receive from all manner of different directions what it needs to live in a particular incarnation, the same is also true of peoples. A people does not have this degree of uniformity or homogeneity, but is rather a context where many influences meet. Amongst the people that dwelt in those eastern regions, all the influences of what I have spoken flow together. Moreover, everything of an inner spiritual nature was reflected outwardly, even if only indistinctly. I indicated that in this people there had to be an interconnecting link within the soul, leading from below upward and also from above downward. This actually existed in the form of a great road leading from the Black Sea to the Gulf of Finland, where it was possible for exchanges to take place between the Greco-Byzantine cultural element and the native element of the Rootsi. In the course of his various incarnations, a human individual has to undergo a variety of experiences. Any particular incarnation must be based on the previous one. This is only possible for the individual human being because the forces necessary for the further course of human evolution are brought together into the substance or material out of which all the various peoples and those belonging to them are formed. A human soul must on one occasion in its incarnations find a bodily constitution that has been forged out of the forces that I have described here. It is a simple thing to say that someone is born a Russian, but it has the deepest possible significance. That a person is born as a Russian means that in the course of his various incarnations he has arrived at the point where he experiences during his life's journey what can only be experienced by living a life between birth and death in a body which has been formed in such a way. If one were not to experience this in such a body, something would be lacking in what one acquires from one incarnation to another. Foolish people, I say this merely as a statement of fact rather than as a means of casting aspersions, are fond of quoting the proverb, quote, The world is best understood in its true essence if it is seen in its full simplicity. Close quote. This is not true. It is merely convenient to think in this way. Deep thinkers have always emphasized, and Ralph Waldo Emerson is probably the most impressive recent example, 
that one only penetrates to the essential truth of facts when they are understood in their full complexity. There is actually nothing simple about the world or about anything connected with world evolution. And just as in the eastern half of the European continent, souls were prepared to experience something special, the same is true of all other parts of the earth's surface, where individual national characteristics are prepared in complicated ways. At this point we need to recall one thing in particular, with which we have become familiar in the course of our spiritual scientific studies. When a human individual has passed through the portal of death, he looks back on his last earthly life, and he is as a result dependent in a certain sense on what he experienced in that life. We know that for several years the links with the former life are a contributory factor to the life after death. This has to be the case. A person must pass through a physical incarnation so that in this period between death and a new birth he has particular memories of this previous incarnation, certain impulses which extend from this former time on earth. Because this person had been a quite particular human being with a particular organism which had been subject to certain influences as a result of earthly circumstances, there are some impressions engraved in the memory that also continue to have an influence after death and which have a certain coloring. This is responsible for the characteristics that a soul acquires as a result of having passed through a particular nationality that it receives from a certain nationality. This is increasingly stripped away the more that the national is submerged by the international, but it is still an omnipresent factor today. Otherwise the events of modern times would not be able to occur. People still to a certain extent look back upon what they experienced through their organism, insofar as it is determined by national factors in their previous life between birth and death. Now, the souls which pass, in the manner described, through bodies that have been prepared in this way, are given a quite particular preparation for the life that they encounter once they have gone to the gate of death. Of course, it is not the individuality that is influenced, only its outer garments or sheaths. But these sheaths with which the nationality is connected still provide something that the soul retains after death, something that it knows formed part of its journey through earthly life. When the soul has undergone life in a body that has been thus prepared, exoterically one would say that in a particular incarnation it passed through a Russian body, it naturally has the characteristics of the outer sheaths which after death become an idea, such as one has of oneself in the way one ordinarily forms such ideas. Into these sheaths it has received everything that I have indicated in this drawing, see page 38. And if one is seeking to express what the soul inwardly experiences through having a body that is constituted in this way, one can say the following. We know from our previous studies that our consciousness changes in a certain way after death. It reaches a higher level. It becomes clearer and more intense after death than it is in a physical body. 
to have passed through what I have previously described prepares the soul for entering into a particularly intimate relationship after death with those beings who live as guardian spirits of actual human individualities and belong to the next higher hierarchy, that of the angels. In the life after a death following a Russian incarnation, the soul is enabled to identify itself in consciousness with its angel, to view the spiritual world with, to put it rather crudely, the eyes of this angel. Man is ever aspiring toward the higher self. This higher self comes to expression in the most diverse ways. If you read the recent Munich cycle about titled The Secrets of the Threshold, you will find an explanation of how consciousness changes, how the soul is wholly imbued with the angel. It must be so imbued and prepared for being thus imbued by the angel as a result of passing through the portal of death into the spiritual world after a life in a Russian body, which has been prepared as I have described. Thus we can say that someone who has passed through a Russian body actually feels how everything has been colored after his death as a result of his being pervaded throughout his whole being by an angel, by the genius of the next highest hierarchy who protects all human beings. On the other hand, the situation with peoples affiliated to Western culture is that one is less strongly impregnated, less strongly imbued after death with the being of the angel. If one passes through a Western incarnation, one tends rather to have an experience after death that one could express in the following words, I still feel as I have always felt. I still look at the world as I did before. Close quote. People experience it as a particular art to grow together with their angel, whereas for Russians it is perfectly natural to be always together with their angel. On its path through incarnations, the soul passes through all possible nationalities and must also experience this incarnation where it receives the impulse to be completely absorbed in the angel to grow together with him and to behold the spiritual world with his spirit eye, E-Y-E. This does, of course, relate not so much to the whole period between death and a new birth, but specifically to the time immediately after death, the first few years or from one and a half to two decades. For in the main period before and after midnight, in quotes of which I have previously spoken, the soul wipes away such images. Thus it relates to the time when the human individual is still influenced by what he has experienced in the physical body, where this continues to exert an influence. And now, on this basis, let us direct our attention to the spiritual world, to what is actually the inner aspect of the world in which we are living. For we must realize that it is only a limited understanding of human nature that believes that one is surrounded only by physical human beings. We are also surrounded continually by those who have died and who live in the spiritual world. Thus we have around us dead souls who have passed through physical Russian bodies, 
and who have a strong inclination to live, so to say, more as an angel in their present soul condition than as a human being. After such an incarnation, what is particularly characteristic is that the ether body dissolves very rapidly in the surrounding ether world. In the case of Western peoples, on the other hand, the ether body is more compact and cohesive and dissolves less easily in the surrounding ether world. Now, as I have often pointed out, we live at a time, I am referring specifically to the time since the last third of the 19th century, since the beginning of Michael's rulership, in the spiritual world, which succeeded that of Gabriel. We are living at a time when these conditions, and especially what I have been describing, manifest themselves particularly strongly in the spiritual world. For it is the responsibility of our time to prepare for the great event to which I have referred in my first mystery play titled The Portal of Initiation, Christ's Appearance to Man in a Spiritual Form. This event of the appearance of Christ, referred to by Theodora, can be brought about only if Michael's rulership is extended more and more widely. This is still a process that is being enacted in the spiritual world, where on the plane that adjoins our world, Michael fights for the coming of Christ. For this he needs his hosts, those who fight on his behalf, and those souls who have been in a Russian body in their present incarnation are important fighters for him in this regard. So we can perceive in the spiritual world a kind of Michaelic campaign of conquest for the coming of Christ, a campaign for which he recruits a host of important fighters from the souls who have passed through Russian bodies and are predisposed to identify themselves with their angel. As a result, they are particularly suited to summon forth the forces to provide in purity the image or form through which the Christ will appear. The purpose of Michael's battle, as I have indicated it, is that he does not appear in a false form in accordance with subjective human imagination, but in a true form. He can best wage this battle through those souls who naturally bear within themselves this angel consciousness and have thereby been specially prepared. A further factor which aids this preparation is that because their ether bodies dissolve particularly easily, they have nothing in their ether body that would make the Christ appear in a false form, in erroneous imaginations. In order that everything that has to happen in the world can happen in the right way, various parts or aspects of the world order need to interact with one another. To be specific, and this should be understood in a purely objective way, in order that what I have described might come about, there is a need to combat a characteristic which is more prevalent in the West, and especially in souls that have passed through a French incarnation. These souls acquire from their nationality the characteristics of clinging firmly to their ether body, of keeping firm hold of a quite particular imaginative form in the ether body. This cannot be combated by Western souls alone. These Western souls must, shall we say, be helped 
efforts must be made as regards the dispersal of these ether bodies in the universal ether, so that no false picture of Christ's appearance is evoked. Hence, the hosts fighting under Michael must become involved by combating those souls that have passed through French bodies. This is what clairvoyant consciousness has been able to perceive in the last third of the nineteenth century and until our own time as the fundamental aspect of our present evolution. A struggle of a spiritual nature has been developing in the spiritual world, in the astral world, between Russia and France. I am, of course, referring to what spiritually underlies these peoples, and this struggle has been intensifying to an ever greater degree. Strife in the spiritual world actually signifies a combining of forces in the physical world, but this is in itself a picture of struggle and opposition. And anyone who has insight into the spiritual world has, since the last third of the nineteenth century until our time, been aware of a spiritual struggle of an ever-growing intensity between East and West being waged throughout Central Europe might well be called the war in heaven, in that the hosts in the east have been increasingly assembling under Michael's rulership to counteract everything that is being done in the west, where materialistic forces are growing ever stronger to prevent the appearance of Christ. Yes, my dear friends, where there is an advanced culture, one that is so developed and has reached such a stage of culmination As in France, the soul has adopted certain imaginations. These imaginations remain after death, and they prevent anything completely new from coming, and specifically what must come through Christ. Thus it is of primal importance in the spiritual world to combat what human souls receive from a fully mature culture. Michael cannot choose the members of his hosts from a fully mature culture, which has embraced a specific imagination. Such imaginations must first be obliterated. Hence, behind the scenes, in the spiritual world, there emerges the majestic picture of the struggle of the East against the West, the host of Michael against the independent souls of the West. And yet the outward physical expression of a spiritual battle is a physical bond or alliance, and alliance on the physical plane is the outward manifestation of a struggle on the spiritual plane. People become allies on the physical plane, when on the spiritual plane there is a need for them to fight. From this you may again see how seriously we must take what is said about Maya and truth. Again and again people speak of Maya and truth, but it remains mere theory. For anyone who has insight into the spiritual world and sees there what underlies the physical world is overwhelmed by a feeling of immeasurable shock as he endeavors in all seriousness to penetrate from Maya to truth and finds the truth that lies behind the veil of Maya. Truth often has to be expressed with completely different words from those used on the physical plane. What is called an alliance on the physical plane often signifies war on the spiritual plane. Of course, 
one should not build on this a series of false assumptions so that one seeks the opposite of what one finds in the physical world in the spirit, for this does not apply in every case. Things must be sought in their full reality in the spiritual domain. In many cases, what takes place on the physical plane may indeed be a direct reflection of what is going on in the spiritual world. In other cases, there is a huge contrast, just as in the present instance between East and West, where on the physical plane there is an alliance in the realm of Maya and in the world of spirit a battle of infinitely greater significance. For through this battle a true picture gradually needs to emerge from the ether world of the being who shall in our time, in the course of the twentieth century, approach mankind in the person of the Christ. At our next opportunity we shall continue with these reflections, but I must ask you to take what I have said today very seriously, for I can assure you that it has a very disturbing effect when encountered for the first time. The end of Lecture 1